So here we are, another Disney film. I actually like this one quite a bit. A lot more than I thought I would, I'll admit, because I don't remember this one all that much. It, not that there's anything bad about it, it's just I usually tend to remember this one more for Kingdom Hearts 2 than anything else, you know. <clears throat> Turns out the Florida team got to work on this one. I haven't really referenced them that much before. I kind of referenced it in how they had to start farming out animation to other studios. Well, the Florida team had been doing little bits of animation for Roger Rabbit cartoons, and they did some side work, side animation stuff for Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, and Aladdin. But now they were like, okay, fine, you can do a full motion picture by yourself. Just just go do it, make it happen. And I'm like, oh, yes, this is it. We're going to make the greatest film ever. Uh, all we need to do is get Stephen Schwartz on charge of the music, and everything will be great. Perfect. Then Stephen Schwartz signed on to do Prince of Egypt. Now, that shouldn't have been a problem. Basically, he was willing to do both Mulan's music and... Prince of Egypt's music. However, Prince of Egypt was being done by DreamWorks, and he'd been bowled over there by Katzenberg. Yeah, that one. Who, by this point, was now working at DreamWorks, and had taken several people with him. So there was a little bad blood there. No legal stipulations. There was no, you know, don't compete clauses or anything like that. It's just, they were like, no, no, you can't. You can't work with our enemies. That would be horrible. You should quit your job immediately. And Schwartz said... Uh, no. So he instead ended up going to Prince of Egypt, and they're like, oh, God, okay, now what do we do? Now what do we do? And apparently, I'm, keep, I'm bringing up the music, of all things, because apparently that was one of the biggest problems they had in the construction of this film. Finally, they landed on getting in Jerry Goldsmith, who, if you've ever listened to, say, the main Star Trek theme from the Star Trek motion pictures, you've probably heard Jerry Goldsmith's work. He's done quite a few things. I'm not a huge fan of him myself, admittedly, but, I mean, the man does have some talent. There was also a couple of other small issues behind the scenes, but the one I want to bring up that is the most amusing to me is the deal with the cricket. There's a cricket in this. Cricky, uh, cri I believe, is the name of the cricket. And, um... There's a cricket, and it's just there in the film. You notice how it doesn't really have anything to do with anything? You know why the cricket's there? Because Michael Eisner insisted that there needs to be some kind of animal companion. And everyone else, and I do mean everyone else, was like, why? I mean, we've already got the horse, if you want that, and a talking dragon. You can't have a dragon. Dragons are big. No, no, it's Chinese. Chinese dragons. They can be whatever size. Oh. Well, we still need an animal companion, but we have... Okay. Here's the cricket. Is there the cricket in this scene? Yes, the cricket's in this scene. Bob. <laughs> God. I do have one other thing to mention, but I'll get to that in just a second. There's some interesting stuff here. Uh, Miguel Fur actually plays Sean uh, Yu, excuse me, which is interesting because he does a good job of it, but I don't remember Sean Yu as being a particularly good villain, and Huthor, on the off chance you're watching this, I tend to stand by my statement. Not a particularly memorable villain. He was ultimately just the face for the Hun army, which I know actually is incredibly inaccurate to call these Huns. Let's let's just let's just move on from that. They did bring in James Hong for the obstinate bureaucrat guy, which sucks, but at the same time is awesome because James Hong is awesome, and it's always nice to hear him. Right off the bat, we see that. Mulan is skilled, creative, and knows how to work around issues. The problem is, is she lazy? 
I only bring this up because I've heard several people say this. In fact, a friend of mine even said this with regards to this film. And I, I found myself thinking, what? She's not lazy? Yeah, look, she doesn't do her chores and she doesn't do things properly. And I'm like, well, that's not laziness. That's just lack of caring. And then we got into a big discussion about the difference between lack of caring and lazy. And we all just kind of just got into a, a completely unrelated tangent. The, one, the thing I was left with that, though, is I tend to agree. I don't really think she's lazy. So I guess I don't agree. What I do think is that she has a general lack of motivation. After all, she is a female in a ridiculously sexist uh, culture. What's, what's almost amusing to me is that they portray the sexism as just cartoonishly evil, which makes sense. It almost takes some of the weight away from it, though, because it's so obviously bad and wrong. It's like, okay... And you also notice pretty much all of the decent people in the film don't actually practice that. Even Shang himself, Ji uh, Shang, I think? I can't remember his first name. It is Shang. Or is it Chang? I'm going to go with Shang. That's what my mind is telling me. Shang is someone who, at the height of decency, doesn't murder her for the horrible crime of the fact that she just saved all of China and the Emperor and him personally. Oh, and she happens to be female. That's the height of decency. That's how bad the whole gender bias thing is at this point culturally. It's pretty bad. Anyways. <clears throat> um, so we see that she's very skilled. And the song comes across, Honor to Us All. Now this is a funny one. Because almost throughout the entire song, they bring up all these superficial features that you have to be this, and you have to be that, and you have to be that. Uh, later on, there's another song, which is done as kind of a light rejoinder of this song. Uh, I forget the name of it. It's it's a, a lady to, back home, you know, a lady worth fighting for. And they all bring up, like, she's got to be quiet, and she's got to be pretty, and she's got to be pretty, and she's got to be pretty. Uh, in fact, one of the quotes I wrote down word for word was, a perfect porcelain doll. During the sequence, of course we are introduced to our main character, as you tend to do. In this case, showcasing that she does have a brain on her, since she looks at the two people's board game and is like, why don't you do this? Ah! I don't know if that was an amazing move or not, but that, that is the way it's being portrayed. Once again, emphasizing her intellect and creativity. So, we also see her motivation here. She wants to please her father. So then she goes in to be uh, approved by the matchmaker, which probably would have gone okay, if not for the cricket. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to point that out. It's actually amusing to me that the cricket is so singularly ex responsible for so much going wrong in that scene. Which, of course, remember, the only reason the cricket's there is because the grandmother insisted on it, not Mulan. So, make of that what you will. And then they play the song Reflection. There's a lot of a motif of reflections in this film, in, in a fairly obvious ways for the most part. But this first and most obvious motif is that Christina Aguilera needs to start her career. I'm not actually kidding about that. I did a little looking into this, and a lot of people seem to agree that this song, you know, Reflection, is the song that launched Christina Aguilera's career. So, congrats! <laughs> Yay! It's a good song. I actually like it. It's among my favorite Disney songs of all time. No joking. I actually know several people personally who relate to it. In fact, I wrote down a little line here which says, and I quote, Why is my reflection someone I don't know?
I imagine at least some of you out there understand that to some extent or another. And so, it's very relatable. And it makes Milan herself very relatable. Her father, of course, is mostly supportive of her and is willing to die for the way things should be. This is the catch. He's mostly supportive, but ultimately he is still stuck in the pattern of how things should be. It's clear based on the way they present him that he's not, he doesn't like it, but he still has to do it. And that should sound familiar because that's not exactly the first time a father of the princess has been someone who is you know, not exactly happy with the way things are, but enforces it nonetheless, the most obvious example being the Sultan and with Jasmine back in Aladdin. Anywho. There's a, there's several scenes which have minimal dialogue. This was done on purpose, but by complete accident. So here's what happened. Originally, the scene where she cuts her hair and all that was done as, as a song. It was a musical number. And then they, they just, it just didn't work. So instead they did another musical accompaniment, which had no lyrics. And then they looked at it like, okay, now we have to write dialogue for this. Pause. This works really well without dialogue. And so it was done without dialogue. And it does work very well. And of course, once again, the reflection motif there. <clears throat> this leads to magic. <laughs> this, yeah, so um, I've been keeping track of the amount of magic in each of these films, as I think I've talked about a few times. This this film is actually almost completely devoid of magic, except for the fact that there's a talking dragon and ancestors which are actually, you know, active and can talk and... Yeah, yeah. So, Mushu gets up. Now, <clears throat> can I just say it was nice to hear George Takei again. George Takei, excuse me. George Takei. I know that one. I know how to pronounce that one. Uh, seeing George Takei is, was, was good. Hearing, I should say, him was good. And they kind of do this tint where Mushu is comedic and comical and funny by making him an asshole. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say something a little bit possibly unpopular. I don't actually care for Mushu at all. He screws things up constantly. In fact, he is the specific reason why the big climactic fight in the in the snow happens. Because he happened to accidentally set off a firework. Good job. But the real thing that pisses me off about him isn't the fact that he's the whoops, I made the everything worse for everyone person. It's the fact that the approach to comedy with him is almost entirely the approach of whoops, slapstick. Which I'm not fond of. And the fact that he is singularly selfish and a liar. That he's, there are multiple scenes where he just makes things worse by continuing to lie. I don't even mean the big lie about the fact that he's all, he's completely in this for himself. I mean the fact, a good example is when Mulan is trying to come up with a fake name, which she didn't come up with for some reason, even though her intellect is supposed to be one of her defining points, and he just starts feeding her random names as jokes. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that no. He graded on me the entire thing, and that's a shame, because I'm actually a big fan of Eddie Murphy, and this, this just uh, that didn't work out at all for me. Anyways, I would comment on how he's a nice parallel, because he doesn't fit, because of you know, blah, 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 but the problem is, he's not really a good parallel to Mulan. She is an intelligent, insightful person who, through no circumstance of her own, is de derided and reviled because of how she was born. He's... A jackass who's a screw-up, who hates it and constantly wants to venerate himself, 
She's someone who does the best she can and screws up occasionally and wants to do the best she can for her family. Anyways. Honestly, if you just, uh, him entirely from the film, I actually think it would be a better film. And there'd be no magic in it, which would be pro arguably the first time since there was the Gargoyles thing in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Tarzan might be the first real no magic one. Huh. We'll see when we get there. So, this is when Mushu gives lots and lots of bad advice to Mulan. First of all, rather than reaching out to her and saying, hey, you know, I'm kind of a screw-up too, but maybe we can help each other, he just lies because it's funny. And then, of course, he gives her really bad advice because apparently he's been watching too much Star Trek and thinks that male equals Klingon. I don't blame him. He's been talking to George Takei. Now, this also leads to something I find very funny. Now, I'm going to mispronounce this, but Harvey Fierstein? Fierstein? I, I suck at these names, and I do apologize. He plays Yao. That that got me. That was pretty funny. I like that. <clears throat> Fierstein? Hmm. So, there's a bit where we see General Lee, who is the captain's uh, father, who's taking the main force to the village, while Shang is left with the peasant militia, you know, the conscripts. Okay, so we have a little bit of the construction of the overall narrative of the conflict now. We've got one army moving in a direction, and another army moving directly to oppose it, because... The Hun's overall motive seems to be, screw you, I like fighting, and also I'm better than you. Maybe they are Klingons. Yeah. This also leads to um, Mulan getting her own tent, specifically because of the fact that she's such a screw-up. I'm pretty sure they did that just to bypass some issues there. I mean, having your own tent in general is something of a luxury in an army camp, especially in this era. <sighs> But I'm getting a little bit off topic. Uh, this then leads to the big montage, you know, discipline, strength, be a man. Okay, I'll admit I like that song too. I actually like several songs in this film, so go figure on that one. What's your favorite? Quick question, out of curiosity. And while I'm asking you questions, well, I guess I shouldn't ask you this, because you remember how in Hercules I mentioned you needed the inside and the outside, and I gave that whole speech about that? Mulan kind of takes a similar take on that. Mulan has the insight already, but the insight in this case is a bit of drive and will. But the problem is, that's the way it's presented, even though that doesn't actually make sense. See, as much as I like the oh, man, the problem is... Oh, and by the way, I should point out that as a male, I'm probably biased on this one. But I, I do have to admit that the... It, it it portrays it as if she manages to succeed because she sticks it through, but that's not really true, is it? She manages to succeed because she uses her frickin' head. As mentioned before, the intellect and the creativity, that is what actually managed to get her to succeed, and then all of a sudden the montage shows all of them getting much better at training. All that tells us is that she's smart and that Shang is a good trainer. Now that's fine, but you could tell how... The tone of it and the presentation of it tries to give a different message than what's actually being shown. It's very, very conflicting. This is what I was going to ask your thoughts on. What do you think about that? And what do you think they were going for? Do you think there was a disagreement behind the set? I couldn't find any info on this. I did, I did a little looking and I, I came up with nothing. So whatever. <clears throat> Moving on. This also leads to about 45 minutes, which is the first point at which she starts to make eyes at him. Now I'm going to go and say something. You know one of the reasons I like Mulan so much? There's barely any romance in it. 
I know. You're just thinking, ugh, lore. Hear me out. Okay, please. I don't mind romance in my fiction. I mind bad romance in my fiction. Now, Disney kind of goes back and forth in the quality. But as I've been complaining about every single one of these videos so far, they like to have the, hi, I'm a male, hi, I'm a female, mwah, thing going on a little bit too much. You know, love at first sight, we just met. And it's just irritating to me. Especially since it's usually portrayed as true love. Here, she's kind of crushing on him because he's a decent guy and very attractive. Okay, I'm with that. And later on, he crushes back because he finds out she's female and she's competent and smart and can keep up with him. Okay, I'm actually with that. So it's like the very beginning of courtship. Cool, that makes sense. I'm completely with that. Uh, anyways, so... Um, let's see here. Ah, yes, now this this is probably the best part of the entire film, in my opinion. So what happens is we have the skinny-dipping scene. Hear me out. Because this, at first I was irritated. It's like, why is this scene? And then I started thinking about it, I was like, oh. So what they do is they have the skinny-dipping scene, which is, oh, ha, 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 she's almost screwing everything up, and, you know, they, oh, naked men are gross, blah, 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 blah. She also even makes the comment, I never want to see a naked man again, and then all the naked men run by her. Um, it's okay, we're all guys, right? It's okay, Milan. I don't want to see naked men either, weirdly enough. So, haha, <laughs> that's funny. And then we see a bit where, oh no, the actual antagonist of the film, which is uh, James Hong's character, I can't even think of the character's name, you know, the counselor, It's like, I'm going to give a horrible report and you're going to be screwed forever. Like, well, okay. And then... There's a zany scheme by Mushu. <laughs> I'm going to make up a big lie because lying's always awesome. And this big lie is going to be that, oh my gosh, we need troops. Holy crap. We're, we're being taken in the past. Okay, and so he hits the thing. And there's antics and there's wittiness and there's wackiness. And then there's a song, a lighthearted song, which again is a, re is a bit of a repriser. In terms of tonality from the whole, you know, they'll bring honest to it all. I just want a woman who's super hot and doesn't have a brain. You know, that whole song. Because these guys are morons, apparently. Although, I like uh, Shin Po's thing. I don't care about anything other than how well she cooks. <laughs> of course, he's also apparently really strong. Maybe he's secretly Pandaren. Anyways, and so we have this lighthearted, silly song to follow up the lighthearted, silly slapstick antics. And then... In the middle of the song, the music just cuts off abruptly, and the singing stops, because they've arrived at the village, and it is completely devastated. This is why this is fa my favorite part of the film. The build-up is necessary to then completely just downshift, to utterly and totally change the shift, excuse me, the tone, shift the tone of the work drastically and violently into showing the actual severity of the threat. If you've been paying attention, up until now, the greatest obstacle that has been overcome is the counselor, who's a cartoonish baboon. Not literally. I know it's Disney, I have to clarify. Now we see the real threat, which is the Huns and Shan Yu and what they can do. And I'm not the only one who caught the fact that they imply, though not state outright, the fact that they murder children, in addition to everything, or at least the one child where they took the, the doll from. And, of course, then, in case that wasn't horrible enough for you, they go one more, you know, one more ledge, and they see what's left of their army. 
That's the regulars. That's the actual military down there with, you know, equipment and backing, supplies, resources, training. That's the formal military. You know what these guys are? These are the militia. They were in the middle of a war and they, they pulled up a peasant levy and said, let's go. That's what these guys are. That's the regulars. They're super dead. Small note, by the way. Shang goes over. I really hope I'm saying that right. The captain goes over and, you know, puts a small little shrine to his father. He doesn't say anything. But uh, Mulan goes over and just gives a quick, you know, I'm sorry. And he appreciates that. It's a really small touch, but I do like that. There are small touches that kind of help to make him a better character than you know, he otherwise would be. So then they keep going up the pass. Mushu nearly gets them killed. I already referenced that. And this is interesting. Because what happens next is they have to fight. So they, they, they retreat. And then they pull out their cannons, the firework cannons, and then start aiming them. Now, what, this is a nice point and, and wonderfully done. They're not ineffective. In fact, they successfully managed to take out quite a few enemy units with it. The problem is they have only so many of those, and they are hopelessly outnumbered. And we see just a tide of cavalry coming over the red, coming over the, 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 oh my god, the ridge, coming over the ridge. And it is terrifying, as it should be. It's not quite to the level, say, the Lion King's stampede, but it's kind of approaching that same idea. And you can see how that animation software is once again being... Actually, this is a new version of it. This is a, an iteration on that. I think they called it the Attila engine. But anyways, point being... Whoosh, that's, oh, God. And that's kind of a nice point, because these men are skilled. These men and women are skilled. They did actually get their training right. They were actually, you know, a, a decent fighting unit. It's just... They're one tiny little fighting unit against that. This is, of course, when Mulan starts to show her talents, creativity, and intellect. And she starts the avalanche. Now, let's... Oh, quick aside, by the way. You'll notice that she sees the, the way to make the avalanche happen by looking at a reflection in the sword. Nice touch. Anyways, so she starts the avalanche, and um, somehow quite a few people survive that. I've actually, so I, I used to live at the base of the Rockies, and I have tra tra traveled into the Rockies several times, which is, for those who don't know, it's a mountain chain here in the United States. And I actually had to undergo several lessons and classes and seminars on safety. One of the things I have never forgotten, and this, I was actually kind of a young child at the time, but one of the things I've never forgotten is if you have the chance to see an avalanche coming, it's over. The best you can do is try to ride it out and pray. It is going to overwhelm you. <laughs> and I just... I've never forgotten that. I know that's not 100% universally true, but yikes. Anyways. <clears throat> so. She's a hero. She saved them. She defeated them. Everything's awesome. Shin Po managed to lift a horse and two people by himself. And they try to kill her. That's cute. It takes till the one hour and three minute mark until... Uh, Mushu finally admits the truth to Mulan. How friggin' time. And also the cricket admits, he's not really a lucky cricket. Oh. Uh, if you don't get it, there was a thing that crickets were lucky. Anyways, let's move on. For some reason, all of the elite Huns actually survived. I guess that makes sense. They had more HP, so that's logical. 
This then leads to them deciding we're going to go to the, the, the palace and we're going to go to the Imperial City and we're going to screw things up, even though I don't think the Imperial City should have been there at this point in history. But whatever, we're already screwing the history line all over the place. It's not a timeline anymore. It's a history line. It's a different thing. It's a lot vaguer. And they, he, she goes to Shang, who for some reason doesn't believe her. Now, thankfully, this doesn't blur into full-on Cassandra truth, which always irritates me. It's just, he seems to just kind of look at this like, eh. She even hits him with the perfect question. You said you trust Ping. Why is Mulan any different? And he has no answer for that. Shrug? I mean, I, I get it. Severely sexist. Anyways, so we go into the Imperial City, and then this is when the Heartless boss shows up, and you have to do this weird trick to jump up on its back and attack it there, and it's really irritating because it does this lightning attack. But thankfully... Thankfully, even though the crew, after the, the Huns reveal themselves, are like, oh, we're just going to brute force our way through the door, she's like, I've got an idea, and rushes off. And they look at they look at each other, yep, gallants, we're going with her. I do find that highly amusing. It's probably one of the most obvious metaphors in the film. They're literally trying to brute force the door, and then Mulan has an idea, so they follow Mulan. Yeah. So then the Be A Man prize plays as they dress up as the <clears throat> ugly concubines, which is absolutely hysterical, I will admit. Mostly because of the way that they just embrace it wholeheartedly. Just, yep, Be A Man. Yeah, we're going to do this. And Shane comes over, of course. So then Shane Yu, Shan Yu uh, uh, curb stomps Shang, just crushes him in a fight. Now this is important because it kind of shows how much of a deadly one-on-one -on -one fighter he is. And that's important because... Mulan has no choice, no chance, excuse me. There is no way she can take him on one-on-one. -on -one. She is utterly, thoroughly outmatched. Yeah, I know, we're starting to get a little heavy-handed with it at this point, because then she gets creative. By the way, that little fan disarm, that's actually a real thing. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, hey, I've, I've seen someone do that in real life. Anyways, so he goes off. He gets exploded into a million pieces. The good news is they'll probably find bits of him for days. <laughs> and uh, this then leads to Pat Morita showing up as the Emperor. Good job. Uh, good good acting choice. I think he works well for it. Why does she decline the council position? I know in the original story she declined because she hadn't been revealed as a woman and she didn't want to be revealed as a woman, but why does she decline it here? Ignoring the incredibly huge implications of the fact that she, a female, has just been offered a council position. There's also the fact that this could be the beginning of an entire cultural revolution since the emperor himself was willing to accept a female into his cabinet. And she's fit for the job because her brain is her main asset. Why does she say no? There's no explanation for this. It's actually kind of irritating. The only reason... I'll go and tell you this. The only reason she goes home is because that's what happened in the original story. She says no because that's what happened in the original story. It's just the reasons for that don't exist anymore. They didn't think it through. <sighs> that being said, I do like the ending. It's a nice little heartwarming ending. Because she goes home and there's her father. And she offers him the sword and the medal. And all he gives a damn about is his daughter. We saw signs of this early on. Again, the whole well-meaning father thing. He may want to uphold the traditions, but at his heart, he cares about that person, her, more than all the rest of the things. And he's, oh, thank God you're here. Thank, oh, excuse me, thank the ancestors. Thank the ancestors. And then, 
Chang shows up and extremely awkwardly is like, "Hey, um, can can I stay for dinner? You can stay forever. Uh, let's let's do dinner first. And then, yay, Mushu gets to be a real thing. I guess I don't care. Good film, honestly. I still think that Mushu should have been just kind of." entirely but regardless of that i do think this is a good film and it was worth watching now i'm a little nervous about the next one i've only seen tarzan once ever so this will be my second time viewing it it is by far the least viewed of the films that i've gone through so far i've seen mulan several times prior to this viewing um, and i think hunchback was the other least viewed one so yeah this will be interesting i hope you've enjoyed my thoughts as always I'll see you next time guys